Welcome to The Christian Atheist, where faith and reason fuse in the Incarnation. Episode number 83, C.S. Lewis's The Poison of Subjectivism, or Modern Idolatry. In his essay, The Poison of Subjectivism, C.S. Lewis says that, quote, the fatal superstition that men can create values is a disease that will certainly end our species and, in my view, damn our souls if it is not crushed. End quote. This week, as Jenny and I process the aftermath of our interview with David Smalley, I have been asked by a listener to define ideology. I think it providential that this week we are addressing the poison of subjectivism, in which Lewis essentially suggests a solution to this for us. Let's see how. As a professor of philosophy, I appreciate that the first point made in this essay is that philosophy matters. Philosophy is about approaching the mysteries of existence and proposing answers to our deepest questions. Answers that inevitably color everything else we think. Our philosophical answers are, like theism and atheism, broad assumptions, which most of us never question, answers that we have taken when we have, on faith, as part of reality itself. These philosophical answers, then, become elements with which we think about our world, even though they are not things we can claim to know. That is, they ground knowledge or are the foundations on which we build knowledge, much like the axioms of mathematics. Now, there are two basic rational steps that the progress of philosophical answers take in all times and places. The first is to seek a ground for our common sense, or what I called the evident in an earlier series on the Christian atheist. This is the rational impulse to causal explanation, to trace what is back to an origin, as science does. Once the first explanation has been put forward, the second step is its denial. This is the critical response, finding fault and error in the first explanation. Thus, for example, theism claims an origin for what is in transcendence, and atheism denies that claim. Thus, we see instantiated in thought the first two moments of the Hegelian dialectic, thesis and antithesis. A positive assertion leads to its being doubted, attacked, undermined. This process is neither good nor bad in itself, but the very structure that human reason must take in a world in which so much is uncertain, unknown. Lewis marks a philosophical shift in modern thought that displays this pattern. It is in actuality not a new answer, but of ancient lineage. However, it has progressively grown in importance and influence in the modern world. He calls it subjectivism. But we should note that it is clearly found in the sophists in ancient Greece, against whom Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle battled. The thesis, in this case, is the evident assumption that reason is a trustworthy tool human beings use to investigate our world and discover objective truth and reality. The second step, then, is the denial of that thesis on the basis of the materialist metaphysics of scientism, which now studies reason in light of materialist assumptions. Thus studied, 
says Lewis, his own reason appears to him as the epiphenomenon which accompanies chemical or electrical events in a cortex, which is itself the byproduct of a blind evolutionary process. His own logic, hitherto the king whom events in all possible worlds must obey, becomes merely subjective. There is no reason for supposing that it yields truth. Thus, subjectivism throws rationality itself into question, along with truth, reality, and value. For if rationality is merely subjective, what do truth, reality, and value mean? Lewis then makes the point that while modern subjectivism originated in scientific investigation, science will be the last of the human disciplines to embrace it, as science can only operate on the assumption that reality is, well, real, and that therefore rationality reaches beyond the epiphenomenal to being itself. In other words, to engage in science is to have a practical faith in reason that denies its status as merely subjective, whatever creedal position one might adopt. Unfortunately today, even the sciences are falling to the subjectivism of the woke ideologues. This essay provides the perfect opportunity to define ideology. So let's get on with it. We need two more points from Lewis first. Most secular attempts to improve the world's ethical reality focus not on the behavior of individuals, but on the social structure itself. As if by reordering the social structure, the mechanical order, all the errors of the parts will go away. This is, Lewis says, quote, the fatal superstition that men can create values that a community can choose its ideology as men choose their clothes. I like the word superstition here, as it is a sort of magical incantation, a quasi-religious doctrine that addresses a problem with a simplistic solution, ignoring the complexity of reality that grounds the problem. It is an arrogant assumption of knowledge that ignores complexity, the mystery of reality. Next. Lewis outlines the two fundamental points on which the whole essay hangs. Let us get two propositions written into our minds with indelible ink. 1. The human mind has no more power of inventing a new value than of planting a new sun in the sky, or a new primary color in the spectrum. 2. Every attempt to do so consists in arbitrarily selecting some one maxim of traditional morality, isolating it from the rest, and erecting it into an unum necessarium, end quote, or a one necessary thing, what we might best call a highest value, what Plato and Aristotle called the good. Value, that is, is something we encounter like stars and planets and all other elements of being. We do not, indeed cannot, create them. So much for the first point. It seems unarguable when properly understood, unless we deny objectivity itself. The second point, however, is where everything comes together. One more quote from the essay. 
Ordinary morality tells us to honor our parents and cherish our children. By taking the second precept alone, you construct a futurist ethic in which the claims of posterity are the sole criterion. Ordinary morality tells us to keep promises and also to feed the hungry. By taking the second precept alone, you get a communist ethic in which production and distribution to the people are the sole criteria. Ordinary morality tells us, ceteris paribus, to love our kindred and fellow citizens more than strangers. By isolating this precept, you can get either an aristocratic ethic with the claims of our class as sole criterion, or a racialist ethic where no claims but those of blood are acknowledged. These monomaniac systems are then used as a ground from which to attack traditional morality. But absurdly, since it is from traditional morality alone that they derive such semblance of validity as they possess. End quote. The salient term here is monomaniac systems. A monomania is an imbalance that focuses on a part, a single idea, ignoring the complex whole. It is an oversimplification. In other words, as Lewis makes clear here, it chooses one ethical precept from out of the hierarchical value structure and makes it to bear the whole weight of ethics. Using our own terminology, it takes a part of ethics for the whole of ethics. We see this everywhere in our current world. You are virtuous if you are anti-racist, or if you are tolerant, or nice, no matter what your relation to the remainder of the ethical hierarchy may be. All subservient values, and all value is subservient to the monomania, become simply means to achieve the one value. These monomanias ignore ethical complementarity, the idea that one can be ethical only in respect of the whole moral matrix, and destroy balance. If kindness is the supreme value, then one must never say anything unkind, even if it is true. That is, truth must be sacrificed to kindness, or anti-racism, or equality of outcome, etc. And that term sacrifice is important. Which brings us to our conclusion. When we elevate one value above all others, we are, in essence, making it supreme, making it God. For God is, by definition, the supreme value, that to which everything else is sacrificed. This is why these monomaniac systems, these ideologies, are so often compared to religions. No doubt they are religious, as religion is about our highest value. I would argue, however, that they are only quasi-religions, undeserving of the name, for religion is a much more nuanced and subtle thing than an ideology. And yes, critics, I mean all established religions. In the West, where religion has reached its fullest expression in the person and sacrifice of Christ, God is not the name of a single value, but of value itself, the complex value hierarchy, the full balance of goodness. Thus, taking the part for the whole 
is definitional of both ideology and idolatry. When a conservative asserts the market as the solution to all economic problems, while failing to recognize that markets are but a part of the whole, a whole which is both complex and mysterious beyond human knowledge, he is falling prey to ideology. When a group of people worship some thing good, as for instance the sun, they substitute a part of value for the whole of value, God. Thus, ideology and idolatry are closely related terms. Both assert the part for the whole and assume an unjustifiable knowledge. This also explains why both ideology and idolatry flourish across all human culture. They choose something good, isolate it from its context in the value hierarchy, and assign to it a value it cannot by itself bear. The parts of value are good, but only within the proper order of the whole. The wrong of ideology and idolatry is not in choosing a bad, but in misplacing a good, wrenching a good from its proper position in the complex value hierarchy and raising it to supreme value. I would like to make one final point. The same critic who asked me to define ideology accused me of believing in a Christian ideology. In one sense, of course, he is right, as Christianity believes that God is the highest value to which all else is offered up in sacrifice. But in another sense, he is wrong, because God is not a part of value, but the whole. He is supreme goodness. To worship him in spirit and in truth is to strive to be ethical, to submit ourselves to the good, to the ideal which we seek, even if we never achieve it. To worship God is to seek balance. Jordan Peterson, at times, talks of being psychologically possessed by an ideology, of giving oneself over to an extrinsic power that controls you. Here, too, the analogy holds, as Christians wish to be indwelt by the Spirit of Christ, to make His will our own. Being possessed by the Spirit of Christ is being possessed by goodness itself. It is taking the whole for the whole, the complex as complex, acknowledging our fundamental ignorance in our submission to the highest reality, the good itself. The is-ought problem that occupies many atheists, including Sam Harris and David Smalley in my recent discussion with him, is the attempt to find an objective grounding for values in fact, in empirical reality. I am deeply sympathetic with their struggle. It was my own as an atheist, and I believe they are right to search for it. It admits of a single solution. And I pray that each and every atheist thinker follows the logic to its conclusion. It is the one and only solution to the Euthyphro dilemma. In Lewis's words, God neither obeys nor creates the moral law. The good is uncreated. It never could have been otherwise. It has in it no shadow of contingency. It lies, as Plato said on the other side of existence.
It is the Rita of the Hindus, by which the gods themselves are divine, the Tao of the Chinese, from which all realities proceed. What is the ground of all existence is not simply a law, but also a begetting love, a love begotten. God is not merely good, but goodness. Goodness is not merely divine, but God. I am a Christian with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass, and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening, and remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian.